Dave will be hanging around after the service. Make sure that you go tell him, you know, that you're behind him and you're praying for him and get on, you know, get on track with what God's doing and so that you can link arms with him and, and uh, be involved in this ministry and however God leads you to be. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Moving through the book of Revelation and we've come to almost the end. Revelation 19 comes at the, at the occasion of the return of Christ. Now remember, throughout the book we see in the beginning where he's addressing the church. But we know that someday the church is going to be taken up into heaven. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and other scriptures, those who are alive that are a part of the church will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And what we call the rapture of the church, the Latin comes from the Latin word to be caught up. At that point, the time of tribulation, a seven-year period of judgment happens on the earth. This was prophesied in the book of Daniel and other places. And most of the book of Revelation from chapter 6 on through chapter 19 is what happens during that seven-year period of tribulation where God is saving as many people as he possibly can during this time of difficulty and temptation. Then, at the end of that seven years, Jesus returns to the earth and sets up his kingdom called the Millennium on the Earth, and we'll be studying about that in chapter 20 next Sunday, Lord willing. But here in chapter 19, at the time that Jesus comes back and he ends evil forever, he, he destroys all of those who have been fighting against him and against his people in this event called Armageddon, this, this time where he finally comes in and just cleans up, cleans house, mops up. As this happens in chapter 19, there's this incredible worship service. There's this great celebration that accompanies his return and his coming. And in fact, even celebrating the destruction of those who have fought against him and turned on him. And it, it gives us a wonderful model of what worship is. It gives us a great opportunity to see what does worship actually mean, and especially why worship God. Worshiping God is acclaiming to him that which he is due. It's talking about who he is and celebrating who he is and what he's done for us. Now, we have this morning during the first half of the service devoted time to worshiping God. And if you're not used to it or you're new or you know, maybe you've been going to church for a while, but you kind of wonder what the worship is about. This passage in chapter 19 should show us what worship is about and why we give it such a prominent place in our worship service. Now, everything that we do in the service is designed to worship God, to declare who he is and to praise and thank him for who he is. But here in chapter 19, I think if you, if you look at this worship service, you will begin to discover why we worship God. Maybe, you know, you're here and you're thinking, okay, why worship the God of the Bible? 
Aren't there people in the world that worship other gods or even other things? What makes the God of the Bible, what makes Jesus so unique that I should worship him as opposed to worshiping, you know, my house, my dog, Buddha, whatever, you know? And, and so here we see who God is in a really unique way. But also for those of us who believe in God, we are reminded of why we worship him in the first place. What is so unique about God that should cause our hearts to just well up in celebration? In this chapter, we see this, well, the, the word hallelujah or alleluia is used several times, uh, four times, I think, in six verses. We just sang the song by Evan Wickham, Hallelujah, Jesus. The word hallelujah means praise the Lord. Interestingly, it's, this chapter is the only place it's used in the New Testament. Um, it's used in the Old Testament and the Psalms quite significantly, but in the New Testament only here. So, you know, we have, we sang Hallelujah, Jesus. We talked a few weeks ago and we played the Hallelujah Chorus that's a part of Handel's Messiah. That's that great song that we're familiar with. Maybe you're familiar with Leonard Cohen's song, Alleluia, that Jeff Buckley made really popular. Um, hallelujah, the, the spirit of it is, God, we, we praise you. And here we see this in a, in a rousing worship service that after we go through it, we're going to come back and, and look at a, a few of the things that make God unique, that should cause us to worship him. But let's go through the passage beginning with verse 1. After these things, it's that word metatauta, it's a shifting of gears. Okay, now we're moving into a different era. Um, the same thing, you know, we saw in chapter 4 as we're moving past the church. After these things, I heard a loud voice. If you, if, if you complain about worship being loud, wait till you get to here if you think this is loud. I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot, that corrupt system who, who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. For us, worship and hey, way to go, we're glad that you're destroying evil, seems kind of weird, but it's actually completely consistent. Somebody had to do it. Somebody had to remove that which is destroying us, and they're praising him for it. And again, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, the representatives of the church, and the four living creatures, these angelic beings, fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, so be it, Alleluia, praise the Lord. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude. This thing is just rising to a crescendo, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's a line from the Hallelujah Chorus by Handel. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, 
for the marriage of the Lamb has come and, come, and his wife made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write down, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, the angel who was talking. But he said to me, see that you don't do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in, white, in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, those who have rejected him. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, as was declared in Psalm 2. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And in the middle of this worship, we see an angel standing in the sun, crying with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, all those vultures that fly really high, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb of celebration, but now we're going to see that as in the battle of Armageddon, God destroys all those holdouts who are still hating him and resisting him. And then you see, as you read down through the rest of the chapter, the beast and the false prophet, all of those who deceived the nations and all of those who did evil are cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the vultures can destroy and eat up everybody who's left. Now again, for us, it's like, Wow, that's a weird way for a celebration to end. They're like, woo, woo, and then all this death and destruction. But it's actually all consistent because when we understand worship, we can understand the fact that God cannot be God and be righteous and do what he does unless he gets rid of the cancer that's destroying the world. And he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He doesn't give it for us to do vengeance, but God, as we will see, is the only one who can legitimately do this. The whole thing together is a picture of a celebration of who God is. And in fact, of, of the appointed description of God as being like no one else. God as being unique. And as we look through this, we can figure out, okay, what makes God so different? What makes God so great? Why should we really worship and follow him? And there may be some of you who are just thinking, I don't know, aren't all religions kind of the same? And really, as somebody who kind of just follows after materialism, aren't they as good as somebody who follows some sort of a God? And I mean, how do you know that your God is superior to other gods? Isn't it all about just being sincere? Isn't it all just about 
trying to be good people. But we see in this passage revealed to us what makes our God so unique. And if you don't know him, as we go through this, I'm going to point out to you some of the things that make him distinct and different. And you'll find that the things that make God unique are also the reasons why we choose to bow down and worship him. The reason why we come together and why on a daily basis we, we continuously are reminded of all that he has done for us, of all that he is and what that means to us. And so I hope as we look through some of these things, some of that will become more clear to some of you. And you may even want to decide, wow, I see the difference. And maybe you'll even want to give your life to him. And, and that's something that you could do today. And we'll explain that before we're finished. The first thing that comes out right in verse one is that God saves and he alone saves. Look at verse one where it says, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. That word salvation, it means to rescue someone. It means to show up when they have no other hope, when they have no other way of being helped, and to swoop down and to rescue. And that's in fact what God has done for us by giving his son Jesus Christ for us. Now, you know, you may go, well, it's kind of like the cavalry, the way they come in. It's kind of like paramedics, the way they show up. But he is, in fact, unique. And, and you may go, but, I mean, you think your God saves, but don't other people think their God saved too? I mean, my savings account is what saves me. Well, here's the thing. What makes our God unique is that he saves us when no one else would. And he saves us by giving himself. As you look through the rest of the chapter, I mean, you notice in verse 13, he was clothed with a robe that was dipped in blood. Jesus Christ is the only God who saves his people by dying for them. It, that makes him unique. There is no other religious system even whereby God is one who sacrifices himself on behalf of the people. That's incredibly unique. And it's something that we desperately needed someone to die for us. See, every other religious system involves how you need to die for your God, how you need to make sacrifices for him. Every other religion is a system whereby the people are manipulated to do something for the God or the gods. It's all about, you need to change, you're messed up, you need to do things differently, and you need to give to God. And so every other religious system is about how to get something from you. And if you give enough, then maybe you'll be okay. It, you know, so many religions in the world, and you go to the East and you see this greatly with like Buddhism and Hindus and stuff, where they have these altars and they come and give their God stuff. And sometimes they'll give them you know, money and sometimes they'll give them fruit and vegetables, but they realize they leave the stuff there for the gods and it just rots. So in a lot of these places you go and they actually just have plastic fruit that they give God. And they burn money for him 
but it's actually fake money because I don't want to burn the real money. Now, if I was going to really, if I wanted to burn money for my God, I would, I would write a check and burn it. But, you know, it's this whole concept of, it's this whole deal of God wants from you. And in fact, every other God in this world wants to condemn you, wants to make you feel bad, wants to tell you you're rotten and you better change. And if you change enough, maybe you'll be okay after a while. Maybe you'll be okay. But, but it's time for you to support me, is what most gods say. But a God who rescues, a God who is salvation, and, and that's why it says salvation and glory. That word glory means just it, it shines, it, it lights up, it stands up. His salvation just shines in glory because it's so different. Finally, there's somebody who isn't trying to hustle you. And then it says, and honor, his salvation. That word honor means value. This is why his salvation and he are so valuable to us because it's him wanting to do for us. It's not him wanting to take from us. And then power, it means it does something. It actually produces. Now, what do we need more than a rescue operation? See, the truth is, even most of the people in this world look at us rather with a spirit of, I have great news for you. I want to rescue you. Instead, what they are communicating is, you're not good. You're bad. Shame on you. And the truth is, most people in one way or another look at you that way and you know what it feels like to feel that condemnation. But Jesus said to Nicodemus over in John 3, he goes, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me would be saved. I came to rescue you. I didn't come to rub your nose in it. I didn't come to make you feel worse. I came to swoop you up and, and deliver you. And when we understand what it is to be saved, then we go, you know what? No one else ever really did this for me except him. And, and when you remember what you got saved from, sometimes after we're saved for a while, we forget how messed up we were. We forget where we were headed, maybe where we had already gone. Otherwise, to just program the trajectory of what your life was doing before Jesus rescued you and imagine where you would have been. Ultimately, according to the Bible, where you would have been is hell forever. Now, that may seem unreal to you. And you may be here today and go, Fuck, I don't think I can buy the aspect of hell. I could take you some places in this world that will make you believe in hell. I could introduce you to some people who have lived through hell. And some of you are people who could go, hey, I can just tell you, I've seen a glimpse of it. I've danced on the edge of it. I've experienced knowing what it is to be just in such utter agony that I needed to be rescued. Well, according to the Bible, that trajectory just continues and we would all be completely devoured had not we been rescued. Now, when you look at where your life could be right now and you remember what he did for you, you cannot not worship him. 
to go, that's right. No one else rescued me. No one else came to my defense, but he did. And he protected me and, and, and swooped in and pulled me away from that which absolutely would have destroyed me. It was, I was well on the way to hell when he showed up. And when I remember that contrast, the contrast between being totally condemned and totally delivered for free, I can't help but worship God. And every day that I forget that I've been saved is a day when I forget to appreciate who God is and what he's done for me. So, first of all, God alone saves. A second thing that I see throughout this passage is that God alone is true. He's dependable. He, he tells you what you need to hear. Look at verse 2. It says, For true and righteous are his judgments. In verse 11, down there towards the end of the verse, faithful and true were, the, were what he was called and, and that's the way he judges. In verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. They can just see through. They have that capacity. And, and in verse 13, he's called the word of God. He is the verbal communication. He is the visible representation of who God is. Now, okay, so God is the only one who's true. First, let's contrast him with every other God alternative. Let's just compare apples with apples. Every other religion is telling lies. You look at a religious system, and it's based on lies and fantasy. And, and you might go, but wait a minute. Some of the things in the Bible are kind of hard to believe, too. And so how is it different than all of the other mythology in the world and how is it even different than, than what, you know, you're saying that the economic system, the mystical religious system, all that is a lie. You call it Babylon. But how, how, do I, how do I know that it's different? Well, here's how you can tell when someone is telling you the truth. People lie for a reason. Gods lie for a reason. They lie in order to get something from you. They, they lie in order to manipulate you into doing something that benefits them. So whenever somebody says something to you and they have self-interest involved, you need to be really suspicious because that's the best way that we have of manipulating people is lying to them. See, no one who is trying to sell you a product is going to undersell it. Generally, a salesman is not going to say, yeah, you should buy this product because you know, it might work and sometimes it's okay, and, you know, but go ahead and check it out and try it, and if you don't like it, you can bring it back. And then you get it home and you go, my goodness, this thing does things that the salesman never even pointed out. It's not on the package. It wasn't in the advertisement. It delivers so much more than it promised. You don't find that kind of a product. What you find in products are ridiculous promises. And then they come along behind that and go, well, I didn't tell you it needs some other attachments in order to begin to do some of those things. And if, 
If it's not working for you, you must not be doing it right. And, and that's true of every other religion other than Christianity. You are told to do certain things, and those things always benefit the people who are telling you to do it. And it never really delivers on its promises. I, I think of the religion of Scientology. This was a religion that was formed by a science fiction writer named L. Ron Hubbard, who years before he started Scientology, in speaking to a bunch of science fiction writers, he said, the greatest scam in the world would be to invent your own religion. And then he proceeded to do so. And Scientology makes some great promises, total peace. You'll be completely delivered from all the little monsters that are inside you that are ruining you. And so they take you to a place, and first you do a little free psychological testing, and they go, you know, if you'll just pay some money and take this little course, you're going to discover true peace. So you pay the money, you take the course, and you're like, I'm still not feeling peace. They go, well, we got another course. It's a little more advanced. It's going to help you remove a lot more of the stuff that's inside of you. So you pay more, you take that course. You pay more, you take the next course. You finally get to the point where you're giving them 90% of your income, and now you just don't want to admit you don't have peace. Because you're out of money. You're, you're like, yeah, I think I do feel peace. And, and then when people leave Scientology, because they go, this is a scam, it's not working, they come and sue you. They hunt you down. Now that's your first clue. When, you know, you don't see Jesus coming after people and going, no, you have to follow me. Remember the rich young ruler that came to Jesus? He goes, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus goes, okay, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. He didn't say sell everything you have and give it to me and come and follow me. He goes, give it, give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the guy was bummed because he had a lot of stuff and he turned on his heel and walked away and Jesus looked at him and he loved him, felt bad. He didn't send the disciples to go kill him because <laughs> he was just telling the guy the truth. If people tell you the truth, it's not to help them. And there are people in the name of God that try to cash in this way. Hey, God needs your help. You know, you need to give to him and then he'll give back to you. We'll make a deal. That's a scam. The truth doesn't work that way. But the truth is every religion has to lie to you to scam you. But Christianity is the one faith that comes and says, you know what, I'm going to tell you the truth. And this isn't something that's meant to get something out of you. And in fact, this is going to be a hard thing for me to tell you. Not only am I not making great promises, I'm telling you, you know what? If you want to come to me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You're like, what? Who would do that? Well, maybe somebody who realizes for the first time, somebody's not lying to me. Somebody's telling me the truth. He's not trying to benefit from, from getting me to be manipulated to go after him, he's telling me what I really need to hear. Now, we not only need that from our God, the truth is, truth is a rare commodity in this world. Almost everyone lies to us all the time. And that is at the source of some of the great agony that we feel in life. Doesn't it feel bad to believe someone and then have them, it turns out they were lying? Doesn't it feel bad to hear that somebody's lying about you? Doesn't it feel bad to have been scammed over and over again to where you get so jaded you'll just never believe anything again? Well, that's what the world does. 
And that's why it's so important that we discover a relationship with the one who we know will always tell us the truth because he has absolutely nothing to gain by it. He just wants to level with us and be honest with us. And man, when I listen all week to all the lies that I filter through, when I hear all of the ways in which I am being conned and scammed and manipulated and disappointed and let down by lies over and over again, I so appreciate that God will tell me the truth. And when I go to him, I can trust what he has to say because he has nothing to gain. None of it is self-serving. All of it comes from a God who wants to rescue me. It's not somebody who's going, let me tell you about yourself. You're horrible. You're awful. Shame on you. But it's a God who comes and goes, let me tell you the truth. And I'm saying this so that I can save you. I'm saying this so I can rescue you, man. I'm telling you, there's a solution to the problem, but I'm going to be honest with you about the problem. I love the fact that even when the truth hurts, when it comes from him, I know it's the truth. And so I praise him for that because I desperately need to know something that I can trust. And he is the one who does that. God alone saves. God alone tells us the truth. Thirdly, God alone really loves with the purest form of love. Look at verses 7 through 9 again. Let's be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write down, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. You know, God doesn't just want to save us and to tell us the truth. He wants to marry us. He wants to enter into the closest, most intimate relation possible. No other system of faith desires to do that, even depicts a God that does that, because every other God depends on a distance in order to continue to establish the superiority of the God figure to people. And it's only the true God, the God of the Bible, who can come and go and say, I love you and I want to be so close to you. And so we see that in the future and probably during the tribulation period, there's a ceremony celebrating the fact that we as Christians, as the body of Christ, are married to Jesus. The Bible uses that image of, of the marriage. Marriage is a picture of the intimacy that God wants to have with us. It's why we celebrate marriage as such a great thing. Now, I'm not saying that earthly marriage is the perfect depiction of this kind of selfless love because in a huge way, we aren't even capable of doing that. But we are celebrating the real selfless love and that is the love that God has for us. Now, there's the marriage of the lamb, and then there's the marriage supper of the lamb described here as probably a celebration that begins at the beginning of the millennium. After all of the Old Testament saints, all of the people who get saved during the age of the church, all of the people who are martyred 
during the tribulation and all of those who have trusted in Jesus, including the 144,000 who make it through the tribulation, we all join together and celebrate the fact that all of this that God has done was designed for him to be close to us, for us to have an intimacy with him. And his love is not, it doesn't, you know, decide, well, you know, you're worth it and you're not. It says it's the small and the great. It's, it's everyone. It's this kind of love. And only God can truly love us this way. I hate to let you down, but people will always love you to some extent for what you can give back to them. Many of you have discovered the horrible inferiority of what we call love on this earth. Because the truth is, you love somebody, but you don't just want to help them and bless them. You, you aren't, you know, you can think you are, but it's really hard for us to love in the kind of way that God loves us. He wants to teach us this, as we'll talk about in a little bit, but, but in the process of human love, I realize I can't just do whatever I want and count on another person to continue to love me in the same way. The truth is, most of us love another person partly because, yeah, we want them to improve for our benefit. You know, we're hoping that, you know, we marry somebody kind of as a fixer-upper project, you know, and we're like, yeah, you know, I think they have potential. But God loves us and wants to marry us, and he goes, I want to make you perfectly blessed and pure. I want your own works that I inspire in you to actually be your clothing. I give you the righteousness of my son and and you will be married to him. You will be so close to him for eternity. Uh, You know, back in Ephesians, Paul talks about this when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then it goes on so that he could present her spotless before the throne of God. When God loves you, it is simply so that he can bless you and make you the best that you can possibly be, not to make him look good and not so that you can help him. His love is completely selfless. His love is totally unconditional. It's just when you allow him to do it that he says, I love you just for you. And listen, there's no other God who will do that. And there are very few people in your life who will even come close to loving you that way. And you know it full well. And if you don't know it, just start to act like a jerk for a while and you'll find out how unconditional the people around you's love really is. We love in a bargain, in a deal, in a transaction. God loves totally from himself And all he wants from you is your best. All he wants to, he just wants to bless you. And we're constantly going, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? He's like, it's not what I want you to do. I just want you to be as perfect and pure and and clean and beautiful as you can possibly be. I am fixing you up so that I can present you faultless. And that's his heart. Nobody else will love you that way. They really won't. They really can't. And so when I think of how he loves me, I want to worship him. Because, boy, I get tired of conditional love. I get tired of the pressure 
of feeling like if I say something wrong, if I do something wrong, people are going to line up to tell me that I've lost their love, I've lost their loyalty, I've lost their appreciation. You know, and, and it's funny, and it comes in different ways. You know, sometimes people will come up and go, you know, Dave, for years I just thought you were a total jerk. But I'm starting to see through that and think, you know, you're, you're not so bad. You go, oh, thanks, thanks a lot. I appreciate that, you know. Other people have a way of communicating, I used to think you were really special. And when I would hear you, I would just go, man, I hear God speaking through you. But now I'm seeing an ugliness develop in you that is just starting to disgust me. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but frankly, whether they say it or not, people will go through that. No other God loves you just to bless you. But God does. And I praise him for that. He's the only one that loves me without putting pressure on me. Because he's just like, no, it's all about me making you the best that you can possibly be. I just want to bless you. And, and I love that about him. And I, and I worship him for that. It's so rare. It's so unique. God is the only one who saves and rescues us. He's the only one who will tell us the truth. And he's the only one who loves us with this kind of love. And finally, another thing that we see about God is God alone stands alone. The reason why God can save, the reason why he can tell us the truth, and the reason why he can love us is that he doesn't need anything. He is uniquely self-sufficient in and of himself. We see, like in verse 6, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. He is all-sufficient, all-powerful. He doesn't, he doesn't need help. In verse 10, prophecy is all about Jesus. The whole thing is just about him. He's the center of all of it. In verse 12, I love this. In the end of verse 12, it says, he had a name written that no one else knew except himself. This is speaking of the fact that he doesn't need anybody else to tell him who he is. He knows who he is. He doesn't need us. He's not trying to get from us. <clears throat> he is completely self-existent. He is completely self-sufficient. It's why the personal name for God in the Old Testament was a word that means I am. I just am. And when Jesus, throughout the Gospel of John particularly, kept revealing himself, he kept saying, I am. And people got so mad. You are? No, nobody is except God. Everybody else is through connections we somehow get what we need. Well, he, he doesn't need anything. Because he doesn't need anything, he can save me. Because he doesn't need anything, he can tell me the truth. He has nothing to lose. Because he doesn't need anything, he can love me totally for me and not need to get anything back. And that's why, again, at the end there in verse 16, he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. God is completely self-sufficient. That's why I can trust him. Every other God needs something from people. That's why religious systems are always designed to drain you, to take from you, to manipulate and control you. Whether it's a, a worldwide religion, whether it's something as, as simple as just following the almighty buck or whatever, 
the worldly system never says, I have enough. Now I'm just going to give back to you. Walk into the casino and pull the lever and it's just going to keep paying off. No, the house needs your money. And every religion needs from you. But God goes, you know what? I don't need anything from you. And I'm the only one who doesn't. Everyone else in your life needs you. Everyone in this world is trying to hustle you in some way and get something from you. And the way they do that is by condemning you instead of saving you. The, the way they do that is by lying to you instead of telling you the truth. The way they do that is by selfishly manipulating you instead of loving you unconditionally. But God comes and goes, look, I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to gain. This is who I am. I'm self-sufficient. And that, to me, is one of the greatest reasons for worshiping him and praising him. I'm so glad that there's somebody that doesn't have to hustle me. You probably have people in your life who in some ways are like this. You know, it's nice when you know somebody who's super wealthy because you know they don't need anything from you. But we all need things from people in various ways. And so there's always a sense, and it varies with people. I know that right now if I say this to you, somebody's going to pop in your head right away. There's somebody in your life who is draining you. You see their picture? God is not that. He's not trying to drain you, not trying to hustle you, not trying to twist your arm or manipulate you. And shame on anybody who in the name of God and in the name of Jesus tries to turn around the self-sufficiency of God and make it look like, oh, God needs you really desperately. It's why we don't get up here and go, please, every week, please give. We're in big trouble. Where if you come here next week and the lights aren't on, you know, you know why. It's because of you. And VBS next week, if you don't volunteer to come and do security, we're just shutting it down. It's not going to do it. That's why we don't do that. Because God doesn't do that. That's not the way he does things. So here we see an outline of worship because God, you're amazing. Because you alone came only to rescue us. You alone tell us what we need to hear even when we don't want to hear it. Even when it may hurt us, it's never about you. It's always about, you need to know this. Here's the truth. And he tells us the truth and then rescues us. Nobody else in our life will love us the way he does, where he goes, no, I just want to bless you. That's all. That's the only motivation of my love is to make you more pure, more beautiful, more complete. And the reason he can do all of those things is because God alone stands alone. He doesn't need anyone or anything. And so we can trust him and we can respond to him. And whatever it is, if you're not following the true and the living God, these are the reasons why you should. Don't you need someone to save you, really? Don't you need somebody who'll swoop down and rescue you? Don't you need somebody who'll tell you the truth? You're being hustled by everybody. Don't, don't you need somebody that you can trust? Don't you, at the base of your soul, need somebody who will love you, and it's pure love, it's not a deal, it's not a transaction. Don't you feel that need in your life? 
And ultimately, isn't it time for you to meet somebody who doesn't need anything from anybody? Somebody who can show you what stability and total health really is? Well, that's Jesus Christ. That's our God. I pray, if you don't know him, that you'll get to know him today. It's as simple as coming to him and saying, you are different. I see that. Now I'm beginning to get why people worship you. Because you're unique. And I need you in my life. And if you'd like to get to know him, in just a moment after the service is over, you can come down here and there are people down here who would love to pray with you and introduce you to this unique God. But for all of us also, I challenge you this week to make this week a day of worship. Uh, Each day to say, God, sometimes I forget what I would be without you. Sometimes I ignore your your greatness. Sometimes I come late to church because frankly, I don't feel like worshiping. But to go, I need to get some time with you to really worship you because I remember the greatness of your salvation. I I appreciate the nature of your truth. I, I, I understand how valuable your love is. I was forgetting about that. And I just want to declare that because you don't need anything, yet you want to be married to me, you want to bless me, oh God, I'm so grateful. And when we focus on those things, worship just becomes the natural outflow of our hearts. And I think at that point, when we worship, and when we sing songs to the Lord, for instance, all of a sudden it means something. It's not just like, okay, they're singing the last song, so I'm going to get a rolling start toward you know, the, the sweets outside because I'm just afraid they're going to all be gone. Or I got stuff to do. There's a big golf tournament on TV, or I need to clean the house, or I want to do this, or I want to do that. And, and so worship is my chance at getting a jump at the door. And don't feel bad if you, you know, have reasons why you need to leave at this point. <laughs> But how about instead just going, I'm going to stop for a couple of minutes. And I'm just going to go, God, you're so worth everything. Everything I could ever offer to you. Everything I could ever give to you. You're, you're worthy of that. That's what this is about. And ultimately, it's because God is all these things that he can be the God who finishes off that which is evil. This this feeding the evil ones to sending them to hell ultimately, feeding them to the vultures, he can do that. And he says, vengeance is mine. The only reason he can do it is because he can do it with a pure heart. He has nothing to gain or to lose. It's all out of his understanding that this is what he needs to do in order to create a world that's going to work for all of us. And so we can even praise him for that. We can even look at Armageddon and go, it's cool that there's echoes of praise songs going on as the evil people who reject him forever end up being destroyed. As the devil and his angels and his workers are taken away. God, I worship you. I praise you for that. Awesome, awesome truth in this chapter. And it's why the great worship service happened at the end at Armageddon when Jesus Christ returns and we go, 
You are so much more than we are aware of. You've been so important to us. You've blessed us so much. And so we can praise him for that. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the reminder this morning that you're different than everyone else. You're not like other gods. You're not like all the people in the world. You stand uniquely, self-sufficiently, loving, rescuing, truth-telling. We thank you. Lord, for people here today who don't know you, I pray that they'll understand that coming down here and getting right with you is the most important thing they'll ever do in their lives. Give them the courage to come up and admit that they don't know you. And then usher them into your kingdom. Rescue them today. We pray for salvation to happen today, now. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and finish off the service by worshiping our God. And again, come down if you need prayer.